today in Rebels. The Trans Feminine Allegory, The Dangers of Mystification, Materialist Trans Feminism, and much more. With Emma Heaney. Welcome everyone to this conversation with um, Professor Emma Heaney. Ida and I have been really, um, really excited about this opportunity because over the past few months, we've been having informal chats about um, the entry of trans theorizing into international studies. So what form it's taken, where it's headed, what the stakes are. Um, and Emma's work has been really just such an invaluable resource for us to think these things through. The reason is because um, the reason is that we've we've observed that many critical scholars within our field have treated transgender people in an allegorical way, and what I mean by this is that many have been more interested in how trans can serve as some sort of figurative exposition of various phenomena of transnationalism or trans boundary politics um, than in the actual conditions of of trans life. So we see many pieces in recent years that find within trans theory, certain heuristic tools through concepts like passing and transitioning and liminality, um, visibility, um, yeah, crossing, all sorts of um, metaphors that can contribute to the study of statecraft and migration, war, genocide, the list is very, very long. Um, and Emma has made one of the richest contributions to the study of the theoretical um, and methodological and political uses of the word trans. And we thought this event would be just a fantastic opportunity for us to learn from her um, and to reflect on what trans theorizing in international studies is currently and should be. So that by way of an introduction, um, I'll hand over to Ida to, to start us off. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Uh, it's really, really lovely to see so many of you today and friends and colleagues and students. Um, thanks for coming. Um, I'm really, really excited to introduce uh, today's megastar, the superstar, the uh, center of uh, this event, which is Emma Heaney. Emma Heaney is an assistant professor in the Department of English at William Patterson University. She's the author of The New Woman, Literary Modernism, Queer Theory, and the Trans-Feminine Remainder. It was published by Northwestern uh, University Press in 2017, sorry. And she is currently editing a uh, collection of essays that address the relation of cisness to feminism. And um, yeah, Emma's book, uh, The New Woman, is really the reason we're all here. So uh, the book traces the creation uh, and the significance of the trans-feminine as an allegorical figure from its origins in late 19th century sexological writing to subsequent writings in the field of psychoanalysis, modernist fiction, and contemporary queer theory. Uh, for me, it was honestly a, an extremely eye-opening read, um, and I uh, implore all of you to go read it after this event. Um, okay, so uh, Emma, let's, let's start. Um, I uh, was thinking it might be helpful as a way of uh, sort of introducing your work to approach the idea of the trans-feminine allegory uh, by allowing you to historicize it. 
So where does it come from? Yeah. Uh, because in your book, the role of late, as I said, late uh, 19th century, you say that, uh, you argue that sexology makes uh, sex cis. And so I wondered what you meant by that and if you can kick us off. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I'm going to do that. Um, thanks so much to Ida and Alex for inviting me and to Tomato for the help with um, prep. Um, I'm calling in today from the so-called borough of Queens in New York City, um, which is the unceded tribal territory of the Matinoc, the Rockaway, the Maspeth, and the Canarsie Indigenous Nations, um, first colonized by the Dutch and the English in the 17th century and in perpetuity named for a queen who never set foot here, who didn't know anything about this place. Um, and today, Queens is one of the most linguistically and culturally diverse places on earth, site of both great violence and great resistance to the ongoing process of colonization, and not unrelatedly, as I'll talk about today, to vibrant trans life and resistance, a place where Queens means something very different um, and more relevant to us in its trans feminine legacy and usage. So um, I just wanted to start with this land acknowledgement and by um, saying that it struck me that from one Queens to another, um, the places we're connecting from are linked by this history of migration and colonization and violence and this knot of power and resistance that is our subject of conversation today. So I just want to start out with that land acknowledgement. So now to Ida's question. Um, what do I mean in my book when I say sexology made sex cis? What is this historical argument that I'm making? Um, and I thank you for this question because it's, I think it's the most important contribution of the book and not the one that often is first sort of noticed. Um, so I'm gonna start by talking about what I meant in the book. And then I'm gonna talk about uh, how my understanding has deepened in the years since its publication, um, mostly through absorption of the scholarship of black studies scholars, indigenous studies scholars, trans studies scholars, and post-colonial feminist scholars. Um, so my original point. Uh, so we're used to thinking of cisness as an identity, right? One is cis if one is not trans, one has a cis body if one doesn't have a trans body, right? But in my book, I'm thinking that, or I'm arguing that cisness is more accurately understood as the ideology that sorts us into these two categories. Cisness is the belief that for almost everyone, for the vast majority of people, one or another set of qualities adhere to our bodies at birth based on the appearance of our genitals, either at or before birth with imaging technology. Um, and you know that diagnosis can then be confirmed or it can be complicated by hormonal investigation of our bodies or chromosomal investigation of our bodies. But cisness is belief in that link, right? Um, this, produce, this belief produces a understanding, a reality, whereby if this compulsory set of gendered characteristics don't adhere to you, then you're viewed as gender non-conforming. And if that non-adherence is um, extreme enough, then uh, you count as trans, right? And there's a whole diagnostic to determine whether you count as trans. And this ide ideology may sound like just facts to many of us, but it's the work of my book to show that it's not facts historically. Um, that cisness, this ideological connection between bodily structures and personal attributes, in fact, is an ideology that disciplines us all. So um, the next question, how did this ideology of cisness come to be? Where did it emerge historically? 
So this uh, diagnostic framework originated in the field of sexology, a broad field that changed over time. In the 1860s, which is sort of the origin of uh, sexology, there are some previous ones as uh, Benji Kahan has talked about, but um, in the 1860s, the first widely known sexologist whose, whose name was Carl Ulrichs created a diagnostic figure to explain the fact that men desire men, right? And this diagnostic figure he expressed in Latin was called um, such men have an anima mulibris virile corpore inclusa, right? A woman's soul trapped in a man's body, right? 1860. Then gradually in the 19th century, as in the end of the 19th century, the idea of homosexuality, the idea of object choice was disarticulated from the idea of extreme inversion, the idea of being of, of this um, sex misalignment. Um, and the idea of transness came out of this disarticulated uh, remainder from the primary project of explaining why men desire men. Um, and it was medicalized separately and eventually became the clinical criteria for establishing surgical and hormonal healthcare by the 1920s, right? If you, had a, if you were trapped in the wrong body, then you could access these um, healthcare uh, avenues. But through this development, Transness retained that original relation to the critical metaphor of mismatched bodies, even though its history as a critical metaphor for desire between men was effaced, right? We no longer think of that as the, and in fact, there was sort of the sense that um, I'm so glad that we've realized now that gay people can be cis, right? In, in the early 20th century, there was this relief expressed. Um, so by the 20th century, uh, sexology was more firmly established as a purely as a medical science in which doctors amassed case studies um, of gender and sexual minorities that distinguished the fetishist from, um, from the masochist, from the homosexual, from the trans person and so on. And of course being trans was one of these categories. Um, but to be clear, this uh, formation was almost exclusively a bourgeois phenomenon, right? Um, in, the, in the 1880s and 90s, sexologists, Richard von Kraft Ebing, chief among them, um, started to make a distinction between congenital perversion or inversion, meaning inborn or acquired, meaning you got it from living a low life with low people, right? And these two um, branches then set two different class standards for how people would be, um, would be treated, right? A bourgeois person would be more likely to be treated as a congenital sufferer of a condition and then medicalized, whereas working class and poor people would be more likely to be accused, um, you know, um, tasked with the idea that they had acquired it and therefore they could help it and therefore it was something that could be criminalized, right? So when we think about the Oscar Wilde, um, uh, trial, for instance, in 1895, which people think of as this like watershed, it's not that he was gay that was significant. It's not that he was criminalized for being gay that he was significant. It was that he was criminalized for being bourgeois and gay, right? Because of course the rent boys and the trans feminine fairies who circulated in queer life were always going to jail, you know, before for, for decades before that. So anyway, so this classed parallel tracks persisted through the 20th century with many working class and poor trans people living in their sex uh, identified sex irrespective of medical intervention or in later decades sort of piecemeal accessing medical intervention hormones and surgeries where they could find them and largely you know um, sometimes often with only sort of vague knowledge of the medical diagnostic of being diagnosed as trans and then being allowed this sort of transformation 
Meanwhile, bourgeois trans people were either closeted or you know, tenaciously pursued these few medical avenues um, where transition was available or medical, trans medical health care is available, was available. So what chapter four of my book emphasizes um, is that the archive documents among um, working class and poor people, that the idea of changing sex or being trapped in the wrong body was not a primary way through which people talked about their experience of transness. So I wanted to just, um, if I may, share two examples from my book to show you what I mean. So the first one is from um, the sexological compendium, The Transvestites, collected and published by Magnus Hirschfeld in 1910. And it's the story of, um, of a trans woman who was born and left home um, because her parents died. Her parents let her dress as a girl, but then her aunts wouldn't. And so she hit the road um, and she traveled all the way to San Francisco by the end of her life. But this is how she um, talked about her life. And I'm interspersing quotes from her with my own writing here. So in Switzerland, she left uh, Austria for Switzerland, um, case 13, which is what she's identified in this book, supported herself as a nanny and by doing housework and embroidery. While thus employed, her mistress discovered her trans status, but quote, did not make a big fuss about it because she'd never had such a good woman worker. This mistress also encouraged her trans feminine employee to go out and dance and meet young people and live, right? At the age of 16, she is raped um, uh, while employed there. And the, the man who rapes her says, I'm going to tell everybody you're a hermaphrodite if you tell anybody that I did this to do. So she goes to Paris, um, where she found work as a domestic servant and, quote, came together with women who lived with other women like married people, which in France is a web, rather widespread custom. And while she's sort of in the social circle, she... Um, uh, she's living with with these lesbian women, um, and one of them sort of investigates her body in the night and discovers her trans status. Um, and in the morning, she's very upset that she's discovered her trans status. And the girl says, um, you don't need to be ashamed. Quote, there are, there are other girls like you. I know of other girls like you. So you see all the, all, already the way in which this trans woman's life, that her experiences, her employment, her vulnerability to sexual assault, her position within feminized socialities is present, right? Is, is just, is the, are the defining characteristics of her life, not the idea that she's trapped in the wrong body and someday might attain femininity or womanhood, right? Another example is from eight years later and in New York City, one of the first trans feminine memoirs by- uh, Emma? Uh, yeah. Emma, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, there's a, a few people in the chat wanting you to slow down a little bit. Oh, sure. Okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, um, okay. So in, um, in this memoir, uh, this, this subject, Jenny June, is the name she went by, is, um, is a Columbia undergraduate and from upstate New York. And she comes to the city and she starts living kind of a double life where she's a bourgeois um, trouser wearing undergraduate uptown. And then she takes the subway down to the Bowery, which is downtown, um, the working class and poor neighborhood of Manhattan. Well, one of them. And um, she's she lives her trans feminine life. And that's really interesting, and it's interesting to follow her whole story. But what I wanted to bring to you was this vignette that she's she talks about of her of the women that she meets in the Bowery. Um, three girls were introduced to me as Jersey Lily, Annie Laurie, and Grace Darling. Two others had adopted the names of living star actresses. 
these were unreflecting and uneducated victims of innate androgenism and having passed their lives exclusively in the slums of New York, they'd always been perfectly satisfied with the lot nature had ordained them. So with their trans status, with their bodies, with their lives, right? And so what we see in this passage is this conflict between a bourgeois identity that says, I've read the sexological literature and people who have trans experience are trapped and they're innate victims and, they, and, and there's a problem, right? And a working class and poor reality in the Bowery and other working class neighborhoods in New York City where trans women named Lily and Annie and Grace were living their lives and um, participating in this reality of um, the generalized presence of trans feminine people in those communities. Um, okay, so I also, I'll just recommend for more on, you know, more of these kinds of stories, um, Emily Skidmore's True Sex, which you'll see here on the screen, C. Riley Snorton's Black on Both Sides, all recent books, um, Jules Gill Peterson's work, um, Histories of the Transgender Child, but also more particularly her work in progress, um, Gender Underground, A History of DIY. Okay. Um, so despite this uh, reality, from Ulrichs in 1860 to our present in 2021, Medical gatekeepers have insisted on a unitary definition of trans life, right? The fundamental form of which is allegorical. A particular life story about entrapment and hiding and isolation um, is extrapolated from this metaphor of entrapment and you're obliged to reproduce it if you wanna get medical services often, right? Tell the story of when you first knew and, and this whole standardized life tale. Um, and uh, so in a straightforward way, sexology made sex cis by ignoring the standard working class and poor recognition of, of identified sex, lived sex as real sex, and creating this ideology of cisness, the idea that there are two sex experiences, being cis or being sadly trapped in non-cisness and desiring a prescribed regimen of health care as the avenue to achieve uh, real sex, right? Um, so that's where the line of thinking ended in my, or was sort of ending in my book. Um, but I began since that time to be thinking about something that was present as a minor thread in my book. And that was the way that already beginning in 1860, as sexology emerged as a discipline, there was already formed um, this idea of cisness by a pre-existing project of internal and external colonization that had the central concern of disciplining people and communities into the gender norms of the white Western European and American settler non-immigrant bourgeoisie. So in the so-called Americas, this looked like a campaign that began with colonial contact and continued through my period of study to enforce gender roles, hairstyles, styles of dress, socialities onto indigenous people 
that reflected European bourgeois norms of how men and women should behave, should dress, um, wear trousers, have short hair if you're a boy. Um, you know, likewise, um, ideas about modesty and so on for, for girls and women. Um, and this is what I wanted to say about that. This is what I've been thinking with other scholars um, since the uh, publication of my book. This kind of enforcement was done both on two-spirit indigenous people. So these are arranged, it's a, it's a contemporary term that draws together different kinds of indigenous gender experiences that had different words based on nation and um, linguistic tradition. So um, two-spirit people were called bote in the Crow tradition in the plains, and they were called mahu in uh, Hawaiian indigenous culture. They were called wawe in, in Zuni culture. So, um, so that this enforcement, the, the forcible cutting of hair being the most sort of um, iconic of them, but also on non-two-spirit indigenous people. So just boys and girls and men and women. Um, I, an example comes to me from this memoir by Zikla Sa about going to an, in, a boarding school um, as part of a de-Indianification process in the first, in, in the 1890s, where um, all of the children were lined up and their hair was cut um, when they arrived. So this common, the commonality of treatment between two-spirit indigenous people and non-two-spirit indigenous people gets at exactly the way that colonization was targeting the non-cisness of indigenous life, right? Um, uh, as a racialized imperative, right? So that's, um, so that is already present when sexologists start um, uh, making these claims about structures and eventually hormones and um, chromosomes. The historian Afsina Najmabadi, whose book I have here, traces this trajectory in Iranian history in the same period from the late 18th century through the early 20th. Um, in her book, she shows that Iranian elites, um, as they came under the, the sort of gaze of British and French um, visitors in the 18th and 19th century, started to slough off or disappear this totally socially um, accepted category, which was called Amrad, which was a male assigned beautiful beloved, a beautiful male assigned beloved, um, because this became a site of discomfort uh, because of the imposition of the idea that physical uh, genital morphological difference was the sole uh, relevant social distinction and that society had to be organized around that genital distinction, right? Or another uh, people that are really helping me to think about this are Durba Mitra's Indian Sex Life uh, and Gayatri Reddy's With Respect to Sex, which talk about, uh, Reddy talks about the regulation of hijra populations in uh, South Asia. And uh, Mitra talks about the way in which ideas about sex workers were um, regulated. And this is, again, the the the, sim the similarity or the really imbricatedness of these two processes shows the way in which cisness itself was a colonial imposition. Um, and as I said before, and this is what I mean by internal colonizations, this was also going on in working class neighborhoods in London and in New York, even as it was going on in the co in colonized. Well, those are I mean New York is a colonized place, but. Um, where bourgeois ideas through vice squads and police departments were being um, inflicted on, um, on communities as um, so 
as trans women were being, as the period, my period of study goes on, more categorically criminalized um, for being for just being trans. Um, okay, so I think I'll stop there with the historical point. Yeah, yeah. follow up. Thanks, Emma. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. And I think um, in the book, uh, you sort of uh, move on to also uh, more kind of uh, your critique of more contemporary um, scholarship. And so you uh, really compellingly, I think, uh, talk about how literary and especially queer theory colludes with, you say, it colludes with cis ideology through its mobilization of this trans feminine allegory. Um, so in, 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 the, in these sections, you explore how, as a trans woman, is allegorized uh, in order to recenter the experiences of cis people in this, these types of theoretical traditions, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning the trans woman uh, vanishes in her own right. And so I wondered, uh, I, I wondered, like, where else do you think we see um, the, the trans feminine allegory taken up in this particular way? Um, and do you think this is sort of like endemic to cultural representations more broadly? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, my book is actually not primarily about identifying this as the literary, well, you see, I just talked all about it with hardly mentioning any literature at all, um, primarily a literary figure, but, um, but it, even though the literary uptake of it is like interesting and rich. Um, but those authors that I write about, I write about for people, James Joyce, Juna Barnes, Aldous Huxley, um, uh, T.S. Eliot, right? Um, they were already coming to an allegorically laden trans feminine when they wrote their books in the early 20th century or poems, right? Um, so I'm arguing that it was it was set up in the in the medicalization of trans femininity, right? And that um, and that, as I say, it, it, you know that that imperative to produce the right story to be identified as uh, diagnostically trans, you know, persists to this day. Although you know, uh, it's still in the medical literature, even though individual practitioners are like moving away from it and like not requiring their patients to like memorize these ideas in order to attain care. But for our purposes today, um, I just prepared a couple of examples of ways that I saw this, um, the allegorical uh, status of trans femininity in cis culture, um, proliferating and, um, you know, in different ways. So people might be familiar with a sort of um, television and film genealogy that um, that treats trans women's bodies as jokes or treats uh, so here I'm thinking of like the film Mira Breckenridge the novel and film Mira Breckenridge um, the crying game Ace Ventura a good portion of the Saturday Night Live skits that were like produced from the 70s to the to the early aughts I'm not sure how much you all around the world watch Saturday Night Live but it's a big thing here in the states <laughs> anyway um, that very much sort of follows the script of uh, uh, of the ways that cis women's bodies are pre presented as jokes or um, uh, made into jokes with the sort of uh, narrative revelation of genital status as a component of this tradition. Um, or another, the other main sort of tradition of representing trans women in film and television is as, as dead people, right? In, in sort of like crime, um, 
CSI franchise sort of shows. So uh, um, a script in which trans women are sort of representative of like the gritty underbelly of cities, right? So maybe people are familiar with this um, genealogy because of the recent documentary film by Sam Fader called Disclosure that sort of traces this genealogy in the 20th uh, and 21st century. But my interest um, is not exactly in this genealogy, although I think what I'm talking about sort of obviously sets up that um, those really genocidal depictions, right? A, a, a sort of media landscape about trans women that would suggest that um, trans women are, are um, so farcical as to be non-existent or actually dead, so non-existent, right? A sort of genocidal um, cultural landscape when it comes to depictions of trans women. Um, my interest is in the sort of ideological claims that are um, grafted onto this allegorical idea of trans femininity. Um, and what interested me about them in the book and, and since is the infinite flexibility of the meanings that are attached to trans women in this way. So, um, so by this, I mean, trans women are either a utopian promise of being free from, um, from, you know, from sex, from the, from the bounds of sex, or there's, there's sort of presented as a dystopian, the, the sort of catastrophic end of sexual difference, right? The um, trans women are either too much woman, too much femininity. Um, I'll show you examples to show you what I mean by it, just to get the framework down, or, or too little, inadequate femininity, right? Um, trans women are either the sort of technological future or trans women are installed as being possessed of sort of a fundamentally anachronistic quality, always old fashioned, always retrograde, always um, hearkening back. So what, so like, this was my interest in this sort of flexibility that could say, uh, well, I'll give you examples actually. So the first is, I just bring it up because it's, it's a foundational example, which was the media depiction of Christine Jorgensen, um, when she debuted um, in the post-World War II era. And the left-hand uh, um, newspaper from the New York Daily News cover um, is the most famous cover about Jorgensen. XGI um, becomes blonde beauty, operations transform Bronx youth, right? And so there was this whole media um, line about Jorgensen that she was the future, that her body was like, representing the technological advancements of, of the miracles of medicine, right? And then there were other headlines, another sort of cluster of headlines like this one from um, a, a Toronto newspaper that said, Christine Jorgensen, and see, here you see in um, these pictures, uh, representative of the loneliest people in all the world, right? Trans people are the loneliest people in all the world. So, so you see trans women, represent fundamentally in their existence either an astounding technological innovation of the nuclear age or they're ontologically bound to sort of loneliness and misery, right? These two very different tracks that, um, that again say this is what trans women mean categorically, right? Okay, and this is the, the sort of this amazing article by um, the amazing historian and filmmaker Susan Stryker that talks about how that first um, track 
of talking about Christine Jorgensen was like connecting, um, you know, she did to sex what the atomic bomb or like splitting the atom did to physics, you know, like this sort of really extreme claims about, um, about the significance of her existence in public consciousness, right? We're to look at a more contemporary example here. Here's a um, widely circulated um, editorial from, from the New York Times from 2015 that took as its subject, um, the uh, reality television star and former Olympian, um, Caitlyn Jenner, right? And it says, um, a new photo spread by this woman, Eleanor Burkett, right? A new photo spread and interview in Vanity Fair offered us a glimpse into Caitlyn Jenner's idea of a woman, a cleavage boosting corset, sultry poses, thick mascara, et cetera, I won't bore you. But, um, and you see the photograph, right? Which is like men in trousers that taper at the, at the ankle and fishnet stockings and like all of these sort of like anachronistic, like 1950s version of, um, of femininity, right? And that's what Burkett is saying. Like, um, like Caitlyn Jenner represents all of this, gender and sex anachronism, right? And therefore trans women do, right? Nobody ever wrote an article saying about Kim Kardashian saying that somehow her display of femininity then says something categorical about me or other cis women, right? So we have that. Trans women are anachronism or from one year before, um, Laverne Cox on the cover of Time, the transgender tipping point, America's next civil rights frontier, right? So again, Either trans women represent in their essence anachronism or the future, right? So, um, yeah, so that's the sort of thing that I was getting at. Um, more recently, still, I just wanted to bring up this um, uh, sort of air of the allegorization of trans women. So, this is an article that was. Uh, published in a magazine called Spare Rib, which I guess is a biblical illusion, um, by the philosophy professor Kathleen Stuck. And its title is Blackface is Evil, Why Isn't Drag? And so I just had a tiny screed to present to you on this subject. Um, so the obvious answer to the titular question, um, Blackface is Evil, Why Isn't Drag, is because Blackface is a cultural practice that reproduced um, racist stereotypes of Black people um, using satire to manage the anxiety of white audiences and white societies that were, um, you know, you know, erasing the routinized sexual assault of black women by white women and campaigns of vigilante terror to kill black people, right? Blackface was what um, lynch mobs did in their spare time, right? Laughing at blackface. In contrast, Drag is a form of feminine performance that originated as a venue for expressing trans femininity and, and different queer femininities um, because such was dangerous to express in public. Drag was always had an intimate relation of cross-fertilization with other modes of feminine performance, um, women as singers, dancers, vaudevillians, um, et cetera. Um, and, you know, so there are two different genealogies to these two different kinds of performance. Um, but what my research can offer an analysis of this um, obscenely racist article is to talk about the way in which the the uh, conceptual underpinning of the racist article is that drag is extracted from its historical place in trans life and queer life 
and reduced to this idea of crossing or cross-dressing. Um, that's the only basic, you know, uh, you know, basis for this, the equation of these two very different cultural practices. Um, and I say that the origin of this conceptual ordering is in the sexological allegory, right? Rather than recognizing trans life as a various um, field of cultural and social life, um, sexology reduces trans life to this idea of sex change or of crossing, a process of crossing over. So the diagnostic narrative and model sets up st Stock's bad faith analysis, you know, like 180 years later. So, um, and I just wanted to sort of end this series of, um, of examples by providing some scholarship that talks about the relation between blackness and transness, um, the, the imbrication, the, um, the, the uh, coextensive nature of blackness and transness, the inextricability of those um, fields uh, from a black studies perspective. So um, work by Marquise Bay, Kayam Green, um, Cameron Awkward-Rich, and Farrah Thompson are all, uh, Farrah Thompson are all things that I recommend to you. Um, okay, I think that's what I wanted to say about that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Those are so, yeah, those are, those are really um, great illustrations that actually move us quite, um, it's a good segue into international studies to look at how the, sort of what, what's happening here. Because yeah. as I mentioned um, in the introduction, the trans feminine allegory is used um, in international studies as well, but not so much to teach us about the category of sex, but to illuminate experiences of border crossing and of forced displacement and of national belonging um, and so on. Uh, so what I wanna ask you is this, is, is this best understood as um, an expansion or a use of the trans feminine allegory that you've charted in your work or is this maybe something altogether new? I can give maybe more detailed examples if that's helpful. Yeah, I need that in order to sort of comment because I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the literature. Yeah. Sure, sure. So. Um, that's a good idea. So I've noted down some quotations from two prominent texts in um, international studies that deploy the trans feminine, and I think that shed light on how this appears um, in different ways. So what comes to mind immediately is, is a book called um, Queer International Relations, which is not the first text to engage with queer theory and IR, but is often credited with sort of inaugurating the field of queer international relations. Um, and in that book, we find that the Eurovision Song Contest winner, Thomas Neuwert, and his drag persona, Conchita Wurst, um, sort of become the central linchpin for the unfolding of the book's argument. So the author refers to this drag persona, Conchita Wurst, um, and I'm quoting, as a figure who defies traditional understandings of European integration across multiple axes. And so who is therefore illustrative of what she calls the queer logic of straightcraft, statecraft. I can't reconstruct the whole book's argument, but she concludes with the statement that, quote, Conchita Wurst makes possible a thorough rethinking of what the process of European integration might mean and what a sovereign integrated Europe might become. Um, we can also look to the work of a migration scholar called Emma Bond, who in a chapter of her book that's called Transgender, Transnational Crossing Binary Lines, um, she asks how, quote, the various manifestations of the trans body can function as a sign of disruption, of displacement, 
of being out of place. Um, and so what she's doing is she's writing that what she calls the journey metaphor of transition can help us rethink categories of confinement, of traveling, um, of migration and of home. And that more specifically, the experience of gender dysphoria can be quote, productively extended to open up new debates around belonging and orientation, end quote. So we have a lot of examples, but those are sort of two, yeah. Okay. What did um, the Emma say about sign of disruption, sign of being out of what? Uh, sign of being out of place. Out of place. Okay. Um, so let's talk about those spatial claims or the, the, the spatial claims of the first argument and then the spatial metaphor employed in the second, in the second, right? Um, so this idea, and I'm, I'm not too familiar with this performer um, or the Eurovision that you mentioned, but I'm assuming it's like a international competition, drag competition, is it then? Okay. So, so the, the scholar, the, the, fun, the place that I can help out in thinking about that scholar's critical metaphor. Well, first of all, we already noticed this setup, right? Uh, drag or trans feminine performance is a figure for represents X reality, right? Um, and doing or, or making that claim drag performance as a figure for outside, right, is extracted from the vibrant trans feminine histories of Germany or of, you know, England or of France or wherever, right? And so that idea that, um, that drag or transness provides an, an alterity or an, an outsideness is something that I would reject, not of course, because cisness doesn't um, marginalize transness, but because to, to, to incorporate that, um, that spatial metaphor of outside into your critical analysis is to repeat the, the cis marginalization of transness. Does that, does that make sense, people? Um, and again, and again, this idea of crossing as being the definitional interest and nature of trans life is just not something, if you are thinking about trans life, not as a figure, but as a geology, uh, genealogy um, is, just not, is just not universal, right? It's crossing or changing is not inherent to every trans experience in the genealogy of trans experiences that we have access to, right? Or like are living for some of us. Um, so in the second instance, this is another, helps me to make another point that I haven't made already. The idea that in, in a sort of utopian strain, the trans body can help us as a sign, help us like assist um, academic or intellectual formation as a sign of disruption or as a sign of um, breaking out of, of, of places that were previously sacrosanct, right? If you, look at the if you look at the genealogy of trans life, trans people occupied sex categories, right? 
Grace and Annie, who were doing sex work on the Lower East Side in the 1890s and, 19, and 19-aughts, were with cis women, right? Were going home to abusive partners, were being put in jail alongside cis women sex workers, right? There was no freedom from the category of sex for, for these trans women, right? There was living as women, right? And, and being criminalized in different ways as trans women sometimes. But the, this, this, this is the other primary, um, you know, multi-discipline uh, uh, notion that I think needs to be investigated and, and left behind. Transness historically has not meant freedom from the expectations or impositions of sex categories. It just has not, especially for trans women, right? That this, um, so the idea that there was some disruption there, there was no disruption when these, of the category woman, when these women were living their lives uh, in the examples that I provided, right? A rapist knew that case 13 was a woman, right? A cop who was arresting these women recognized them in this pre-existent or in this in this role in which trans women had always been included right so the idea that this is a disrupt a fundamental disruption and that the and that the sort of body this this is what in the second instance is so um compoundingly troubling that something about a trans person's body means this thing right that has been ascribed to 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 those bod that sort of abstracted body um, is just not supported if you think about actual um, genealogies of trans life and experiences of embodiment. So th those are the things I could say about those examples. Yeah, thanks, Emma. That's, um, that's really, really helpful, I think, for a lot of us um, to think with uh, what you just discussed. Um, I wanted to um, I wanted to get to something else that uh, Alex and I would we're thinking about when we read your book um is, is is this sort of like we read the book as also engaging with an already sort of pervasive propensity within critical scholarship um to sort of find subaltern groups that might serve as a place uh from which you can launch critique in a sense and this move necessarily requires a, de a degree of abstraction uh, from the conditions of life uh, of those considered on the margins. And so uh, I thought uh, I would just read a short paragraph, uh, which I think is uh, worth quoting at length, and Alex is putting it up now, which is by uh, decolonial scholar Robert Shilliam, who uh, makes a similar, actually, observation about subaltern studies in his book, The Black Pacific. So I'm just going to read out that for everyone. So he says, uh, Spivak carefully argued that subaltern studies was a politically necessary, but necessarily irresolvable intellectual project. Yet she went further than this. Because the subaltern could not appear without the thought of the elite, Spivak also proclaimed that the subaltern provided the Specifically, she argued that the historical predicament of the colonial subaltern could be considered the allegory of the predicament of all thought, all deliberate consciousness. Philosophically then, Spivak bade the subaltern to travel from the periphery to the center, but only to become there the 
recalcitrant difference that structured elite discourse. As the project was taken up in when opportunistic utilization was made to proffer less an opportunity to decolonize knowledge regimes and more another faculty through which to deconstruct knowledge of the Western self. Um, maybe you can stop the screening, Alex, thanks. Um, yeah, so I wondered what you thought of this quote. Uh, and uh, I suppose also to what an extent you see your work uh, as part of a more general critique of abstraction uh, within academic uh, thinking and writing. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a, you know, a neat analog between um, Shalom, Shalom's account of the way that the subaltern um, was misappropriated from Spivak's thought and incorporated um, into a way of just sort of speaking endlessly about the philosophical um, figment called the Western self or something like that, right? Um, I think there's a neat analog between that and the way that, for example, Esther Newton's work, I'm not sure have people read Esther Newton's um, work on drag, uh, anthropological investigation of drag in the um, 60s in the United States, that, that like ethnographic work, which was like citing how um, people in this drag scene in, in like Kansas City, you know, in the, in the, in small cities in the Midwest were, were talking about their performance and talking about their lives and talking about their relation to one another and talking about the way that there was a hierarchy in that scene where the more trans a, a person involved in that scene was, the lower she was on the, on the hierarchy of social value, right? Uh, so all of those sort of particulars of the, again, that, that trans feminine genealogy of life and experience got taken up in queer theory um, and, and all the particularity is sort of effaced and, and, and transness became this sort of figure for how gender operates, right? Which is uh, the reification of cisness often. So, you know, in Spivak's thought, um, the sort of force of the subaltern is the destruction of colonialism, right? The destruction of coloniality and colonial ways of being. Um, and in the transfeminist uh, genealogy of thought, um, there, you know, trans women and trans feminine people have, um, have articulated all different ways in which the force of, of transness um, is that it destroys cisness, that it operates, um, or that it, that it is the destruction of this notion that there's an ontological difference between a penetrator and penetrated, right? That it opens up this field of theorizing embodiment that notices that all bodies are penetrable, um, all bodies are subject to feminization, right? But the idea here in, in this genealogy is that trans women don't represent that reality. Trans women, beginning in the trans feminist thought from my period of study, have produced that thought, right? Have written about bodies and modes of life in ways that communicate that the force of, tr of transness, right? Um, 
so I'm, I'm in my book, I'm looking at examples from 1880, from 1890, but it's also at work in contemporary um, thinkers and artists like Janet Mock and Jules Gill Peterson and Tourmaline um, and Grace Lavery, or even working in a trans feminist tradition, the work of Sophie Lewis, right? Which is talking about bodies and for instance, the experience of gestation as an experience that uh, exceeds the cis expectations that have been put on it, on that experience, right? Um, so, so both, you know, the both the subaltern and the transfeminine in these theoretical appropriations have been created as minoritarian identities, right? Rather than as being recognized as what they are, which is socially produced resistant forces, right? Um, and it's through this conversion of transness as a social force or subalterity um, as a social force into an identity um, that can be you know, assigned to a figure that can then represent something that the academy is sort of reifying the myths that sustain it. Um, so it's Fred Moten and Robert, uh, Robin D.G. Kelly and Margaret Christiansen, um, indigenous scholar Margie, Margie Christiansen and Billy Ray Belcourt and Jody Bird, who taught me this, right? That the that for instance, the social force of indigeneity or blackness or transness or the feminine or the subaltern exceed the individual person, right? And that doesn't mean that like white people or cis people or settlers or um, can go around saying, oh, you know, these things are just social forces; they're not identities. So I like have the right to like give my voice equal weight on these matters, no. But we can say that people who are called black or indigenous or trans have, or um, you know, um, anti-colonial have a privileged relation to these social forces, right? It's blackness, indigeneity, transness. So you can see from this answer, right? Um, I hope that my view is clear. I'm not against abstraction in the least or theoretical formulations, right? My my understanding of the cis invention of, of of a cis definition of trans femininity, which is my object of study after all, right? Um, or was my first object of study in this book, that understanding would not have been possible without Marx's value form, without Luce Rigore on the feminine, without Fanon on how desire animates racial structures, um, without Denise Riley, without Lee Pugino Fortunati on the definition of reproductive labor, without Hortense Spillers on the ungendering of flesh, like all of these um, abstract theoretical concepts name reality, help us to name reality accurately, help us to name what power has made of us, what power has done to us, how it severed us and chopped us up from each other. My quarrel is with mystification, which I think is different from abstraction, which I know to be different from abstraction. And I think that the position of trans femininity and the origins and iterations of queer theory have been mystified. By mystification, I mean that the theoretical figure of the trans feminine in works of queer theory has been extracted from its material and historical conditions of trans feminine life, the conditions under which it makes sense and it makes knowledge and it makes resistant incursion on civilization and on, and on cisness. Um, and it's been a fundamentally cis project 
of producing metaphors and allegory, allegories out of this figure um, that have conserved, that have served conceptual ends that have nothing to do with trans life. Um, I think that there are abstract theoretical uh, concepts that can be derived from the genealogy of trans life. I mean, it's just been happening all along. We just have not been talking about it or like making it the center of things. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that, well, anyway, I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Emma. That's really, uh, I mean, just so um, instructive. Um, so I have one final question before we go into a Q&A discussion, um, which is about alternatives. Uh, because in, in your book, in the, in the final chapter, you propose this alternative, what you call materialist transfeminism. And I just wanted to give you um, the opportunity to, ex to explain what materialist transfeminism is for you. Um, but more specifically, I wanted to ask how it avoids falling into the trap of representational politics that, for example, queer theory uh, was hoping to escape. So, I mean, when you're when when we're arguing that, for example, materialist transfeminism is about theorizing the reality of actual trans people's lives without this move to allegorization, how can we? Oh. Oh, I didn't freeze. Sorry, I, someone else was. Um, how can we do that without appointing ourselves as, like ourselves as theorists, as the final arbiters of trans experience or of subaltern experiences more broadly? How do we avoid that? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I really thought of that chapter as my book, of my book, less as like proposing materials transfeminism and more as just like noticing what had been happening, what trans women had been like doing since the 1970s, you know what I mean? And like presenting it um, in a scholarly venue, just like a book, you know? Um, so, and then, and then like trying to characterize it, which, which did feel um, presumptuous to, to even like come up with a name to call this disparate um, genealogy of ways that trans women kept themselves and each other alive, right? Which is what I consider this genealogy to be, this genealogy of, of thought and, and political struggle. But I called it um, materialist transfeminism. Uh, so it's not a program and it's not a self-identified group or, or you know, cluster of groups. Um, it's a name of, for a lineage of organizing activities of trans women from the 70s to the present. And I focused on the US um, primarily there because those are the archives that I was in um, over here. Um, but I also saw those um, organizing activities as being basically coextensive with less organized things that trans femmes uh, had been doing to keep themselves alive, even back to my period of study. So just since I brought it up, that example of that um, trans woman, you know, finding that group of less Parisian lesbians and like living with them and like having them and people helping each other find jobs, you know, in feminized fields, embroidery, domestic, you know, everywhere she goes, she's doing these things. Um, so I, I, I saw this work in the 70s, which I was mostly interested in that cohort in the late 60s um, and early 70s as being coextensive with all of these skills that trans women had used to get their health care by hook or by crook, to find shelter, to find food, to find sociality, to find expression, to find dates, to find all of the things that compose, compose 
lives, both individual lives and collective lives. Um, so my focus there was was largely on um, on groups of trans radicals in New York City, in Miami, um, in Los Angeles, who were taking these conditions of lives, of life, the things that they'd known from being, you know, trans 17 year olds, 18 year olds, 19 year olds, and trying to um, to organize them into political organizations, right? To get their sisters and siblings around them, these necessary things. And these um, women and femmes were very engaged with what were called the, trans the third world radicalisms of the time, right? So the practices of the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, the Puerto Rican nationalist um, movement, uh, and even anti-war radicalisms at the time. And actually my, um, I'm working on a piece with the um, anthropology and indigenous studies scholar Margie Chris Jansen about the, the, the close ties between the ways in which a lot of women who were involved in these um, trans feminist organizations were also involved in these third world organizations. And, and Margie really is like totally driving that the observation that that's talking about the way in which cisness and whiteness or non-cisness, um, transness and anti-coloniality and, um, you know, anti-racism are, are imbricated in those struggles. But, um, but so this was the genealogy that I was proposing in contrast to the theoretical genealogy that I was trying to move away from. Um, and, and so the answer to the question, how do we avoid um, assigning ourselves the position of arbiter as academics is of course to not do that. Um, the answer is to look to this for the same um, materialist answers um, or, or the same materialist questions in the present. What are the immediate material and spiritual needs of trans feminine communities and most marginalized members of these communities? How do we attain um, and act collectively to attain freedom from policing and incarceration, access to housing, food, medical care, spaces in which trans sociality and intellectual and cultural production flourish, place for autonomous control over all of these necessary resources. Um, and the sort of methodology for achieving this um, is simply to listen to trans women and trans femmes um, and trans people to cite trans women, to publish trans women and people. So in terms of scholarship, um, in addition to the books I've already recommended, I can recommend the forthcoming collection, Transgender Marxism. Um, I have a slide that depicts that collection, but that collects all kinds of essays um, that are you know, different kinds of reflections and investigations and dis dispatches from the present um, you know, landscape of trans struggle uh, and trans life from a materialist Marxist perspective. I can also recommend the work of the emerging scholar Beans Velosi, who's starting um, a job at UPenn next year and whose um, work is investigating the way that science invented cisness and transness in relation to eugenics and, and race, um, race medicine in the early 20th century. We can also, so that's the sort of scholarly side of things. Then in terms of, um, this idea of listening to trans women, we can listen to community organizations who are tending to the material needs of trans women um, and trans communities. So in my community of Queens, New York, um, that you know looks like the organization Red Canary Song in Flushing right up here, um, who, work, who are working to decriminalize sex work um, and focusing on the needs of, of women of color sex workers and trans women of color sex workers. Um, uh, 
it, it looks like in my local context, working to support the overturning of local laws that are used to criminalize trans women of color. So in, NY, in New York City, there was this anti-loitering ordinance, which, you know, when you looked at it, the ordinance just said like, you know, people can't hang out on um, with no purpose in public space, but the way that it was used was to arrest trans women um, who were suspected or, you know, just trans women, right? And there was a campaign that was called repeal the walking while trans ordinance. So the, tra- the ordinance was sort of given the name of its reality of the way that it was implemented um, and, and it was overturned. Um, another sort of way to get at this reality is in the United States, there were these two bills called FOSTA and SESTA, which were um, used, uh, which passed the National Congress um, and made it put in, put in place all these new restrictions on um, online uh, operation of sex work sort of um, communication pathways, which was really devastating for people um, in terms of, you know, online negotiation and operation of sex work stuff being safer. Um, There's the organization GLITS, which is an um, acronym for gays and lesbians living in a transgender society. Um, And the co-founder, Cayenne Dorosho, uh, you know, put together this model where they, um, where the organization crowdsourced a bunch of money and to find housing for trans, for black trans women and trans women of color. Um, And, and they did, they bought a house, right? So, um, on the national scale in the U.S., I follow the work of Trace, Chase Strangio, who's the point person at the ACLU for a legal strategy um, for beating back. In the states right now, we're dealing with this reality where um, state by state, these um, bills, the language of which has been written and then distributed to all the different states to do state-level bills, are seeking, are, are focusing just a lot of attention on making it um, illegal for trans kids to participate in sports, right? Um, in, in athletics and, you know, K through 12 athletics. Um, and these are just popping up all over and organizations all over the country are trying to beat them down or trying to address them. And the ACLU um, and this lawyer, Chase Strangio is sort of uh, keeping track of all this. Um, yeah, and in the UK, I know there's a lot of energy around the um, Gender Recognition Act, and I'd, I'd love to know about what community level work is going on in London and, and elsewhere where people are calling in from. Um, so, so that's it, you know, like um, that's how we we avoid the pitfalls of um, of approaching trans life as an abstraction by investigating it as a reality, as a field of, um, of experience that is both internally diverse, you know, widely internally diverse, but also has these um, concerns around which um, we can gather. Um, you know, and I just think to add, to sort of answer the, the institutional question that you're asking, Alex, I'm inspired by um, Fred Moten and Steve, uh, Stefano Harney, who say, um, you know, to the university, we steal, and there we steal, right? We take this infrastructure um, that has produced so many uh, brutal abstractions of uh, lives that are actually lived and converted them into tools that do nothing 
um, for those lives and communities. We go to that place, the university, and we see what we can make of it. And we hold ourselves responsible. I think it's a comp out for academic, and we try and do better. And we, you know, engage criticism of our own methods and our own work. I think it's a cop out for academics to say, oh, how could I possibly do anything? I'm just up here on my pillar, right? Um, we're workers. We live in communities. Um, in the US and from what I know of the UK, we're increasingly precarious workers, right? And I think this idea of the sort of elite academy is formed around conditions of life and labor that are based on sort of in the states, Ivy League and Ivy peer institutions that those conditions are getting rarer and rarer. Um, and so I think we should move with that, move with the, the ways in which the precarity of academic life um, is no longer even allowing us that cop out of being like, we're just too, too freaking elite to ever know anything, right? That's my answer. Субтитры а, 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 а